Hi, and welcome to the Time for the Good News podcast, the place where you'll hear nothing but good news. We are your hosts, Susan and Dan Grantfield. So welcome to episode 10. Um, Dan and I have, as usual, been looking through all the various uh, media outlets that we can to find what we think are some of the best good news stories out there. Um, and as we've said before, you know, it's really not that difficult when you actually try looking or when you start looking um, for good news stories. So we have got a little mix, I think, um, this episode, haven't we? We've got some energy, yep. climate, some wildlife, wildlife yep. uh, some human interest stories. That's it. So yeah. Bit, bit of something for everyone, I think. And also, I think what we found when we look at the stories is a lot of positive news network websites, things like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. out there as well. That's one thing I've noticed recently. Yeah, yeah. There's more and more of them as well, I think. Mm, yeah. Which is great stuff. So other people are joining us in our quest yeah. to create more good news stories. So let's get going then. Um, and I'm going to kick off with the first story. So um, this is about um, rewilding which is, is something that I'm sure many of us he- hear about these days in, in mainstream media as well. Um, but what I really love about this story is when you see the picture of Randall Plunkett, who's the 21st Baron of the um, D- uh, Dunsany um, estate in Ireland, he does not look like somebody He's who'd be into rewilding. He's an Irish Baron. Um, he was into death metal. He's got a ponytail. He wears um, fake leather jackets. Uh, he was a bodybuilder, you know, self-confessed steak eater, and he took over this estate when his father died. Um, it's a 1,600-acre estate in Ireland, and he has turned over more than half of it to rewilding. Oh, brilliant. Great stuff. So, the, 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 so a lot of the land was used before for farming, so it's very agricultural. And so when he stopped doing that, he, there was quite a lot of backlash from people who were saying, well, you're not using the land for the, what it should, how it should be used. But what he's found from um, turning it over to rewilding is that just one one statistic was instead of there being just three types of grass, there's now 23 types of grass. He hasn't planted them. Oh, he says that's all down to the birds and the insects. Yeah, pollination. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so he um, so he's now part of the European, or his his estate is now part of the European rewilding network. Um, now. As I said, rewilding is something that many of us have heard of, but I had no idea that according to the UN, the world needs to rewild and restore an area the size of China to meet um, our commitments on um, in terms of climate, you know, tackling the climate yep. crisis. Yep. I mean, that's, that's a lot of land. Yeah. Um, and as I say, I'll, I'll post a picture on our Facebook page um, because this guy just really doesn't look like your stereotypical kind of rewilder. Um, and in fact, he, he makes films. That's what his sort of passion is. And his next film is going to be a horror film, which I thought was quite oh, right, interesting. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, one thing for me with this story is that he's, even with all the backlash, I mean, he's had death threats on social media, he's, he's tires slashed, he's had a lot of stick, but he is doing what he feels is the right thing to do um, with, sure. with his land. Um, and he said what he's learned in the process is patience and tolerance. Um, and his family motto is make haste slowly. And he says with rewilding, it does not happen fast. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Because rewilding is quite a buzzword at the moment. In fact, mm. I've got a, a bit of a rewilding okay. story as well. So, shall I go, go straight into that? Okay, so interesting. I wasn't going to use this one first, but I will do because it follows on nicely with what you're talking about. 
it's not rewilding as such, but it's when you're talking about rewilding an area the size of China, mm. this is one of the ways of doing it without revolutionising the world. So an English moor has been transformed into a giant sponge to absorb CO2. Wow. Yeah. So a peatland restoration project on a moor near Manchester has been launched to help with the climate crisis. And yeah, that's interesting. Is peat bogs, not those things we get annoyed in when we walk through when we're hill walking. <laughs> yeah. So over the last six months, conservationists have sculpted three and a half thousand scallop-shaped buns or dams into the peatland at Holcombe Moor in the West Pennines. These trap water. Right. You know, and re-wet the peat which has dried out due to pollution, overgrazing, mm. and um, moorland fires. Mm. Yeah. So peat bogs store twice as much carbon as the world's forests. Wow. But release the CO2 when they are degraded. So again, our behaviour ah. has dried them out and has led to the release of the CO2 that they were sequestering. So Maddie Nash from the National Trust, uh, which is a National Trust project, explained how they also soak up flood water. Mm. So, you know, the problems out of floods mm. in this country and things like that. And they stop rainwater rushing across and off the plateau and instead trap it, um, allowing a lot of special plants to thrive, which help the peat absorb carbon. Mm. So healthy peatlands are also hotbeds of diversity, attracting yeah. plants, insects and rare wading birds, such as the golden plover. I also found out while I was looking at this, the UK government has pledged to restore 35,000 hectares of peatland by the end of this parliament. Okay. Didn't know that. No. So the UK no. government fact didn't know about. Mm. Why I like this is an example of repairing the damage we've done mm. because we now understand the benefits of it. So when you talk about rewilding somewhere this uh, this one of China, mm -hmm. we're actually just repairing something that's yeah. already there rather than creating something. Yeah. Just by building some some buns dig, yep. digging these holes for the water to yeah. get trapped again. Amazing. And I think so many of these environmental type stories that we are coming up with, or we are coming across, it's not about creating something brand new. Yeah. It's the solutions are there and it's yeah. and, and the fact that we can repair. Yeah. You know, I think some people think, oh, well, the damage has been done. Yeah. You know, is yeah. there any point in trying? And the, the answer is absolutely. Yeah. It's just like the body repairs itself. Yeah. So the, the earth can repair itself with our help. It's also conservationists mm. helping us chip away at the climate crisis. Yeah. Not just science, yeah. not just politics, mm -hmm. but conservationists mm -hmm. working on their small amount, you know, their their area is also helping us, yeah. you, know, you know, kind of improve the, you know, collection of carbon from the air. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. I like that one. That's great, yeah. yeah. Well, my next story is, is, is linked um, in terms of kind of energy and, and sustainability, but um, it really made me smile when I came across this because it's a bit of almost like a human interest story as well. So there's a venue in Glasgow, my hometown of Glasgow, called SWG3. Oh, it's in the West, yeah. the West End. Yeah. Um, I went to a beer and, fair there. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a venue that has, yeah, yeah, yeah. has lots yeah. of different, you know, arts and crafts and all yeah. sorts of stuff. So they are, they're looking to sustainably harness energy released by nightclub goers to save up to 70 tonnes of CO2 per year. Interesting. So it's called um, uh, the Body Heat Project, and it's going to be happening on the 7th of November while COP26 is happening in Glasgow. Oh, the Climate Change Conference. Yeah. yeah. And so what they're going to do is they're going to capture the body heat from people who are in and around the venue, and they're going to capture the, the heat, 
which can then be transported through 150 metre deep boreholes installed across the venue and it can be stored for days, weeks or even months. So they can then use that to power the energy, you know, for the for the venue. And it said that the statistic I found really interesting was idly mingling. So it said <laughs> when you're idly mingling, the human body radiates 100 watts of excess heat. So they're going to capture that and they're going to use it to power the venue. Well, that's amazing. So... And you think of there are there's a form of heating, is it air source heat where it takes heat from the air? So it must be mm, something, something like that. It's to do with heat yeah. pumps. Like air source heat pumps, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, yeah. Imagine if all nightclubs in yeah. in the world and, did that. And again, you see the potential in that. You yeah, think yeah. how many spaces now that we're able to start moving around a bit more, spaces where you have people together create generating this heat and it goes nowhere at the moment. Yeah. So, Turn the aircon off. Yeah. You know, aircon's bad for, for the climate. Yeah. Everyone gets sweaty. Yeah. Produce a lot more heat. And away <laughs> yeah. you go. Oh, it brings back memories of sweaty nightclubs in Glasgow. <laughs> anyway, moving on. What's your next story, Dan? Okay, so as you know, I kind of dip in and out of uh, fusion energy stories. And this is one from the USA. And I just, I'm conflicted about it. And, I, right. and you'll see why in a minute. So the US have achieved a, a laser fusion record. Um, at the National Ignition Facility, or NIF for short, mm-hmm. at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in Colorado, um, obviously full of boffins. The NIF, as it is known, wasn't designed as a power plant, um, but it's designed to understand fusion reactions um, at the heart of thermonuclear weapons. Okay. This is why I'm conflicted. Mm. The USA banned underground testing of nuclear weapons after the Cold War in 1992 very admirably mm-hmm. um, but they need a way of testing them to make sure they're safe and reliable and they're not unstable right like that. so they use a lot of computer programs and this um, this NIF ignition facility place mm-hmm. but they also are able to test fusion reactions and they've recently in in one experiment they generated more than 10 quadrillion watts of fusion power Ten for quadrant. a fraction of a second. So wow. this is seven hundred times the generating capacity of the entire US electrical grid. How much? Seven hundred times. For a fraction of a the second they're able to produce that much energy. Okay. When I was also looking at these fusion energy stories, I came across one where the heat produced in one experiment was twice that of the sun. <laughs> Try and get your head around that. <laughs> that so it just shows blind. you the this you know this fusion business is you know the, like I said before there's very little way of byproducts of radioactivity mm. etc you get with fission. Mm-hmm. So this this facility is being used as an energy facility as well. And the one thing that amazes me is because it was designed for weapons. It's a three and a half billion pound facility. Yeah. Because obviously cause... weapons used to be very important. So it's a very well financed thing. And they're now putting three hundred and fifty million pounds a year into into its energy um experiments as well. Mm. Um so that's why I was a bit conflicted about mm. it. But just human beings have produced that much energy in a fraction of a second and energy that's twice the heat of the sun. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean it's incredible. I mean I think fusion will be the real saviour I think from mm. this the clean energy however it's just how much heat's produced and how do you make sure it's safe and all those different questions that you've got to answer yeah um, but you know pretty pretty amazing stuff yeah I mean the more you look for fusion stories 
the more you'll find there's thousands of fusion projects going on throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The US have got some really big, impressive ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, everyone's, most governments in, in the big, larger developed governments that have cash mm-hmm. seem to be developing fusion, mm-hmm. fusion experiments. And that's the thing that I, I, I'm not sure that I've heard much in mainstream media about fusion, mm. but as you say, there's loads of it going on. And, and so we tend to hear the, the bad stuff and, and the, yeah, you know, the, yeah. the, all of the bad environmental statistics. Yeah. But, but th- this is what we want to do is, is get, reassure people, give people a sense of hope. That yeah, absolutely. Although we don't have all the answers yet, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of work being done out there. But we know these scientists in the USA have produced 10 quadrillion watts of fusion power. Yes, uh, yeah. You know, in one experiment, which, yeah. you know, just incredible. Yeah. So, that's often. Okay, so if your mind's been blown by that. Um, I've got a couple of human interest stories. So, um, uh, I, I just, these are my favourite kind of stories. People doing amazing things for people. So, in um, Minnesota, in the USA, there is a group um, called the Nitty Gritty Knitters. <laughs> so it's a group of people who come together um, it's a craft group and they knit and then donate hats and shawls to the Minnesota Visiting Nurse Association but then in July one member suggested something different um, her sister was undergoing kidney dialysis and something that she knew through that was that it can make you quite cold and obviously because you've got to have you know your arm exposed for the dialysis to happen they decided to knit arm warmers. <laughs> so they have been knitting arm warmers. So this, this woman created a pattern for arm warmers that cover the hand and the forearm, but leave open the part that is needing access <laughs> cool. for dialysis. Cool, yeah. I just love that. So they're now distributing these to people yeah, who yeah. are... Yeah, brilliant. And you just... I just love the stuff like that happens. I can just picture the nitty gritty knitters. I know. Sat around in chunky knit sweaters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you can just imagine the chat as well. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. But, you know, knitting, often, good kn- stuff. knitting's a big thing these days for a lot of people. The other one that I'll just quickly mention, and, and this I think has been in mainstream, so probably a lot of people have heard this, but um, a restaurant in London that is owned by Gino De Campo, who's an yeah, Italian yeah. chef, um, so uh, for, for one of their guests or one of their customers um, came in, she came in for dinner with her friend. It was her birthday and Natalie um, T. Pa, I'm not sure if I said that right, but Natalie, it was her birthday. Um, she's blind. And um, when the staff um, realised that she was blind, but also that it was her birthday, instead of just doing the usual thing that a restaurant might do, which is bring you out a cake and sing you happy birthday, the chefs made happy birthday in moulded chocolate on the plate. It braille. Braille. braille yeah, written cool. In braille. I think I remember she's, this story. She's, yeah, yeah. she's never experienced that before. And yeah. this was not pre-planned. It wasn't yeah. until they were there that the staff realised and they went into the kitchen and then the chefs... I mean, I just think that's wonderful. It is pretty amazing, yeah. I mean, the chef knew braille or they were able to look it up? I or? don't know. They, it, it sounded from what I read that they, they must just have gone online and looked it up. Or, yeah, that's but, cool. I mean, that just makes somebody feel really special. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Good example of hospitality at its best yeah absolutely so you've got another story I have and it's a wildlife one and it's about beavers as you know I like beavers very very much so (laughs) (laughs) the first baby beaver has been born in Exmoor um, Mm -hmm. and the first time in 400 years because as we know um, they were hunted to extinction for their fur glands and meat 
and I thought glands what's all that about mm. and it's castor castorium which is a kind of oil that comes out of sacs next to a beaver's anal glands lovely uh, which is used in perfume medicine and food Ooh. Uh, so so okay. that's why they were hunted right and they were they were hunted to extinction in the 17th century but this kit uh, baby beaver's called a kit was spotted at the Holnicott estate in Somerset where the animals were reintroduced in 2020. Um, the project in Devon has seen the beavers transform a 6.7 acre site from an unmanaged woodland to a more open wetland, hmm. attracting more wildlife in just 18 months. Wow. So get yeah. the beavers to do it. Get the beavers, yeah. So Ben Erdley, who's not a boffin, he's a National Trust project manager, quoted... <laughs> The beavers are doing a lot of what we want to see in terms of con- conservation and land management. Mm-hmm. So effectively, they're doing it for us. Yeah. So I just thought I'd get some beaver facts. <laughs> so Dan's beaver facts. Beavers only build dams in order to maintain water levels. Uh, if a river is wider than 10 metres long, they build tunnels and burrows. Ah, okay. Beavers live in family groups with a breeding pair and offspring from the current and of the previous year. So it's not until they're two years old they go off to find their own territories. Mm-hmm. They slap their tails as an alarm signal. You know, mm-hmm. those big tails they've got. Yeah. Beavers are vegans. People think they eat fish and stuff, but they don't. Mm. They're herbivores, sorry, in the animal kingdom. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. Um, so they don't eat fish. Uh, common beaver myth. Yeah, yeah. They do eat farmed crops. Oh, right. So they're like a bit of pre, pre-Weetabix. Uh-huh. Yeah, so... Um, they can fell trees more than one metre in diameter. So diameter of a metre. My goodness, yeah. right. And considering they're a rodent, they only have one litter of kits a year. Uh-huh. And they only have two to four kits in that litter. Ah, right. Interesting, there you go. Beaver facts. Beaver facts. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. That's it. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I just want to finish off um, with this story. Now, th- this is... This is uh, Depends on your point of view whether this is good news or not. Um, but if you are a, a fan of 1970s music, 1970s pop music, then the fact that ABBA have reformed Way! may be very good news for you. Take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. <laughs> okay. So they're releasing their, uh, their first uh, studio album since 1982. Um, and they are putting on a concert in London in a purpose-built arena with a 10-piece band, but it's going to be digital versions of themselves called avatars. Because they're all about 100 years old. They're 70. They're 70. Yeah, okay. So the group have said that they're creating the strangest and most spectacular concert you could ever dream of. And there's something about, they're not giving much away, but something about using their younger selves to go into the future. It all sounds cool. very interesting. But they opened a TikTok account this week. And as of Thursday, they had 7, 738,000 followers and 3.2 million likes. Crikey. So... You know the world's going the right direction when ABBA reform. Yeah, that's it. All is well with the world. <laughs> Love it. So we shall um, leave you with that, the memory of Dan singing there um, and the beaver facts. Um, but we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will bring you more good news stories in a few weeks time. Bye for now. Bye for now.